0: Good afternoon, everybody. So good to be together. Um, let's dive into Scripture. We're going to be reading from a few passages beginning in the book of Genesis and actually working our way toward the book of Acts as we continue the sermon series on the Holy Spirit. And the intention of this series is for us to not make assumptions that we know who the Holy Spirit is, but actually to go to Scripture and let Scripture inform how we understand who He is, how we see Him, His work in our lives. Um, and, and also, beyond not making assumptions, to just intentionally create a posture in our hearts to develop intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Um, it will, as we see from Scripture, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to uh, check out the sermon. You will, uh, as we go to Scripture, it'll be convincingly clear that the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital. For us to have a strong, dynamic, living relationship with God. And so let's go to Scripture. Genesis chapter one. This is the very beginning of Scripture. Verse one. It says this In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Luke's gospel, the third chapter, verse 21 and verse 22, this is the moment where Jesus is being baptized, says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Acts chapter 10 verse 34 to 38. This is the moment when Peter is preaching after the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his household. These are the first non-Jews that receive the gift of salvation. It says this, Then Peter began to speak, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to come to your word, to learn of you, to hear your voice. Instruct our hearts, we pray. And Holy Spirit, as we go to Scripture to learn about who you are and your work, may we have an encounter with you. Teach us who you are. Give us openness in our hearts for all that you desire to do. And Father, may we hear, as Jesus heard in the waters of baptism, your voice resounding over us, that we are your beloved and that you are well pleased with us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You know, there's a book I would encourage each of you to get a hold of during this sermon series on the Holy Spirit that uh, will be in this series till the day of Pentecost. So we have a few weeks where we're going to cover some really rich ground in Scripture to discover and lean into all that the Holy Spirit makes available for us. But the book I want to encourage you to check out during this series, it'll be a great devotional read. It'll encourage you in your prayers and your quiet time with Jesus. It's a book called Forgotten God by Francis Chan. And the the book is really devotionally written, it's well written, it has rich theology in it. But in particular why I reference it today, honestly, is just because of the title. The title aptly, sadly, but aptly describes the posture that we tend to develop toward the Holy Spirit. That very often he's forgotten. Um, He's seen as tangential to the Godhead. Um, We respect him, we honor him, but we don't always acknowledge him. We don't always create the place that he deserves in our lives. And part of the hope of this series is to recover that, to make sure that he is not forgotten, that he actually has his rightful place in our lives, leading us, shaping us, empowering us. But it's an idea to wrestle with, isn't it? The idea that you and I could actually forget God. Think about that for a second. That we can actually forget God. That we often forget God. And that we are constantly in a state of recovery of trying to remember God. I don't know about you, but... One of the worst things, and now please keep this in perspective. This is totally first world problems. Um, I hate when I forget my wallet. When I, how many have ever gone through that delightful experience in modern life, right? Who, like, how is it that these plastic cards contained in a container can cause so much dismay when you can't find them? And isn't it the case that you lose them when you can't afford to lose them, right? When you're, you got to leave the house in three seconds, and at that moment, can't find them. In my house, those are the moments when Chris is not very, very thoughtful about who Jesus is, and, and I forget God during those moments. I literally, like, line up my kids. I interrogate them, who did it? You know, just like. You, you look guilty. You're not giving me eye contact. Like, it, I get so stressed. My wife, she, she ratchets down my intensity. Like, Chris, we'll find it. Retrace your steps. I've done that already. You know, like, I, I got, it's so stressful. But what we're talking about today, it's not forgetting keys or a wallet. It's the fact that we often forget the Holy Spirit that we could live our whole day in life without a conscious dependence on him. You know, one author said that if God lifted the Holy Spirit from the church, it might take us two years plus to realize he did it. Because we're so used to doing things in our own strength, in our own capacity, without a conscious reliance on him. We're seeking to correct that and to recover that. And so, interesting, I was talking with one of our members, really thoughtful member, and, and she asked me a really provoking question. And I love the question because it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, honestly, for a couple years, um, on and off. And she asked the question, said, how do you as a pastor wrestle with times and seasons in the church where you don't see the work of the Holy Spirit active, And I love that question because I'll be honest, there have been seasons as a Christian, as following Jesus, pastoring, where I've seen the Holy Spirit do intense things, miracles, amazing works of God that make you like, wow, the Bible is real. This is true. This is our reality. Followed then by weeks and months of blah, you know, just like normal life, just get up, pay your taxes, you know, just pay your bills, do normal stuff, go to work. And it's just like, how do you wrestle with that? And, and the question caught me at a perfect moment, especially as I was preparing to, to work on this sermon, because the reality is we, we kind of go through a pendulum sometimes. We either forget the Holy Spirit, or when we decide to remember him, we only selectively remember him in signs, in wonders, in miracles, in these kind of overt, big things that are part of the stuff that he does. But today, I want to talk to us, as we look at these scriptures, about the hidden work of the Holy Spirit. Can you say that with me? The hidden work of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 to 17, it's the passage we're going to spend the rest of our time with. It says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit, that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. It's important to note that before the Holy Spirit empowers a person to do the works of God, the first thing he does, he empowers a person to become a child of God. That his first assignment, his first and primary interest is not just to get you to do the works of Jesus, but actually to share in the experience of Jesus to be a child of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's the Holy Spirit that imparts the identity of being a child of God. What Paul says in this verse is that it says it's the Holy Spirit, it says the spirit you received doesn't make you a slave so that you live in fear again, rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And it's by that spirit you cry, Abba, Father. And it's the spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So it's the Holy Spirit, when you receive him, that he testifies to your spirit, the first Moment that you have a sense of that identity that I'm a child of God, you didn't derive that on your own. You didn't just pull that from thin air. The Spirit testified, He preached to your spirit, you're a child of God. It's His adoption that He makes possible, the adoption to sonship. It's the Spirit, when we receive Him, that we get this identity. Now, this is a fascinating thing to process an identity that is affirmed, not earned. An identity that is affirmed, not earned. Now, we we need some retooling to actually process the significance of that because we have been grown and reared in an environment, in a society, in homes, in life that has told you that who you are, your identity is something that you work for. You earn it. Now, it's not always good identity that we earn. If you're that friend that is constantly thought of as late Sally or, or late Fred, I got news for you. You earned that identity. You, it was the consistent lateness that con, you, you earned it. You earned it. You have established your name. You are associated with lateness, and you should be proud of that. No, I kid. Um, We earn our identities. We live in a city that unapologetically says you have to earn your identity. And we'll take back the identity that you earn the moment you're flaky, just even one second. Our jobs tell us you earn your keep. We will reward you when you perform. Stop performing. We'll take back the goods we have been acclimated to live with this sense of an unceasing striving to earn our keep, to justify our existence. It's why we struggle with stopping work. It's why so many of us are workaholics. It's why so many of us struggle to take Sabbath. A day off, shutting everything off as worship and rest unto God is insane. For so many of us, I was talking with this Christian leader, and he said it this way. He said, I think I'm doing okay. I asked the question, how are you doing, man? I know life is crazy. He's like, I think I'm doing okay. I'm having fun. But, um, you know, maybe I can't sit still for an hour in a room without feeling like I'm losing my mind. So maybe I'm not doing that okay. I was just like, <laughs> I'm as honest, but that, that's many of us. When was the last time we shut our phone off? When was the last time... We struggle with having a sense of identity that isn't rooted to doing, to earning, to striving. And yet, here, we're told that God has made it possible for us to carry the greatest identity that you could ever have, to bear the name, the title, the status that's unmatched, and it's affirmed, not earned. It's given, it's spoken over us. It's a relationship that we can't earn. We freely receive this. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us that identity, that testifies to our spirit, that says no longer is God some distant deity, He's no longer some heavenly judge. He's your father. You're his child. You have a relationship with him. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. Now, how does he do that? What's the process in which he does it? I'm going to say something that at first might be a bit controversial, especially if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. You might get upset at me, but just hold on. I'll clarify, and at the end, it'll end really, really nicely. Um, I feel like a pilot that says, Turbulence is coming, but don't worry about it. Just buckle up. It's going to be fine. Everyone that exists, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not, in one sense can claim the status that they're a child of God. They have dignity, inherent worth, They were created with a purpose, and God created them. And if God is our Father, then they could assume that status. But it's one thing you assuming that status. It's another thing God affirming that status. And here's where us as followers of Jesus, we're not just children of God because we're breathing, because we were created, because we have inherent dignity and worth because we're human beings and we're made in the image of God. We are children of God at a level that's up here with everyone else. Does that mean we're perfect? No, does that mean we don't have the same struggles as other people? Gosh, no, I know plenty of Christians that, wow, we win the struggle race with the world. And so that doesn't mean that we're better or, or we have some superiority, but it does mean that when God looks at the world, There are children of his that assume that status, and then there are children of his that he affirms that status over them. He says, you are my child. Who does he affirm that status to? Now, the Holy Spirit isn't like Oprah, like, you get a child of God. You get a child. He's not just like giving this away just randomly. Actually, we understand from Scripture that there is a truth process. If you follow the crumbs of truth and, and ask, who does the Holy Spirit affirm this status that you're a child of God to, you realize it's not random. It's not arbitrary. Actually, there's a, thought, there's a process behind it. And if we back up in the book of Romans, we get the clue. We get the identifying factor that people that believe this, that affirm this, that trust this, Those are the people that the Holy Spirit says, I affirm them as children of God. I testify to their spirit that God is their dad, their Abba. I teach them to call on God as father. Those people are the people that believe this. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 26, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Man, this is such a rich verse. We could spend a year on this. Let's look at verse 23. It, says, it, it is one of the most democratizing statements in the whole Bible. It's one of the, the barrier-breaking statements in all of Scripture. It actually brings us together more than you could ever imagine. And that is when God lets us know some bad news about us. All of us, doesn't matter what school you went to, your SAT scores, doesn't matter what neighborhood you live in, what career, your family of origin, your ethnic background, all of us share this assessment that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, but do we resist that appraisal? Do we fight that assessment? We fight it tooth and nail. And it's sad that we do. Like right now, if you went home and you were met with a letter from the IRS and the IRS says you owe $50,000, I'm pretty sure every single one of you would be like, I am fighting that. You got the wrong person. There is another person by that name, not me. I've been good. You will fight that. Why? Because the implications of that are intense, they're severe. You don't want to claim that status because of the consequences of it. Yet, to claim the status of being a sinner leads to nothing but good news. Because to claim that status is to identify yourself as a worthy recipient of the grace that's been aimed at every sinner. And Paul says, not only that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, that this Jesus that we worship, he died in our place, on our behalf He died the death that sinners deserve to die because of our egregious, offensive arrogance where we push God out of the center, where we forget him, where we replace him. Imagine we replace the creator with things he created and say, I'll worship that and not you. And yet to those sinners, he's made a way for pardon, for freedom, for grace, And all that's necessary is for us to believe that he's done it. It's an amazing thing. Imagine if you were arrested for the most reprehensible crime imaginable, where they have a right to keep you locked up for the rest of your life. You're guilty. You did it. There's no denying it. And they tell you, if you want out, there's only one way. You have to believe that the judge is good, that the judge can pardon you, that despite the evidence that's insurmountable against you, that he has the ability and the willingness to wipe it clean. As insane as that is for you to believe, if you believe that, if that belief is registered in your heart, you can be free. It, it's an example, but it's, it, it crumbles after a certain point. It doesn't even bring us close to approximating the reality of what Scripture is telling us that's made possible through Jesus. But it's when we believe what to our minds is outlandish and so extreme and the generosity and love of God is reckless to those who believe The Holy Spirit says, I will affirm to you that you're no longer just a a child of God that you are claiming an identity. No, I'm affirming it over you. You're a child of God. This is what makes us children of God. When we believe the gospel, when we believe the good news, the Holy Spirit is then empowered to affirm that identity to us, to testify it, to speak it over us. Holy Spirit does so many amazing things. I wish we had more time. If we go back to Romans 8.14, I would encourage you this week, read the verses that come before Romans 8.14, because you you won't fully understand this statement where it says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, unless you read the context Because leading up to those verses, what you'll find is that the Holy Spirit is actively leading God's children toward increased holiness, increased obedience. And so when it says those who are led by the Spirit of God, the context there is not that the Holy Spirit is leading you to buy this house or sell that one or move here. or No, he's leading you toward increased holiness. And so after he affirms this identity over us, there's some evidence that comes by this identity taking root inside of us. And the first thing that we become aware of is that the Holy Spirit empowers us toward increased holiness. It's so amazing what the Holy Spirit does in your life and mine when he affirms that identity that we're children of God. Because one of the things that happens is he alone changes our very appetites, our desires. There's things that prior to you having this affirmed identity that you're a child of God, there's things that you and I would once wallow in that after you get this identity that I'm a child of God, you somehow find yourself repulsed by. If in the past you could tolerate a racist joke, in the past, you could be there present while there's gossip being said. In the past, you could indulge in certain fleshly desires. All of a sudden, you get this identity, I'm a child of God, and now you can't tolerate certain things that just once were part of the furniture of the room. He increases us toward holiness. But the other thing that we see in, this, in these verses, that the Spirit he prompts us to relate to God as our father. He says, the spirit you received, verse 15, doesn't make you slave so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit teaches us to see God as our father. as a loving, approachable, tender, caring father. And for some of us, we have been blessed to have fathers like that in our lives. But for some of us, we have not been. And so when I say a father that's tender, loving, affectionate, accessible, for some of us, we have no concept of that. But for those of us in this room that have had great fathers, the revealing of God the Father by the Spirit, all respect due to your great fathers, he makes the great fathers in our life look terrible in comparison to how good the Father is, how amazing he is. One of the evidences that the Holy Spirit is affirming your identity as a child of God is that you are learning to see God as your father, as an accessible, tender, approachable, loving, present father. And if we're honest, for many of us, that's a struggle, for many of us, Our default is to see God as cold, as distant, as someone you have to perform for, earn his love, someone who is authoritarian, cold, indifferent, and the Holy Spirit comes and says, no, I'm going to teach you how to relate to God as your father, and that requires a changing in everything. The third thing the Holy Spirit does, as we see Paul's writings here, he delivers us from fear. The spirit you receive does not make you slave so that you live in fear again. But then it has the contrast. How how do we get delivered from fear? What's the opposite of living in fear? It's receiving the spirit that brings about your adoption to sonship. This is amazing. The Holy Spirit, he delivers us from fear. Even the dogs rejoice at this good news. (laughs) The Holy Spirit delivers us from fear by affirming our identity as children of God. And this is powerful. Because if we scratch the surface of most of our fears, the rational ones and the irrational ones, at the foundation of those fears is often unbelief toward the goodness of our Father. Fears are most potent when we tend to believe that God is not good, but not just generally good, but that he's specifically good to us and that we have a degree of expectation and reasonable expectation to believe that he will be good toward us, specifically my name, your name, where you live, you, the exact person. And we have that confidence because the Holy Spirit affirms us, you're not just some created person. You are someone who the Father affirms as his child. And you can expect this God to be good to you, to commit to be good to you, to be faithful. So much so, one of the reasons that you can expect that is because he's endowed you with the ability to be called his child. And in our world, some of the, the, the richness of this language of adoption has been lost but actually, if we go back to the first century, to Roman culture, when someone was adopted, they inherited the status of the firstborn son. So much so that they were never treated on a different level than their firstborn son. They had the same privileges, the same rights, and often could, re- could enjoy even a better relationship with the father just by bearing the father's name. In other words, when God affirms to you that you are his child and he's your father, what he's affirming to you is that from that moment on, you can live through this life with the identity, the expectation that God will take care of me. Because to not take care of me would be for him to dishonor his own name as father. So for you walk around as as marketing for the Father's glory, where people will be able to assess how good is our Father by how good he treats his children. And every single day he puts his name on the line, his faithfulness to be scrutinized by the world, by his commitment to you as his child. He wants you and I to walk around with that expectation that I'm a child of God. I'm not an afterthought to God. I'm not an inconvenience to God. He doesn't have to work his way up to love me. I'm a child of God through and through. And because of that, I could have the expectation of his love, of his care. I love these words by F.F. F. Bruce. He says, the term adoption may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears, But in the Roman world of the first century A.D., an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was no wit, not in the smallest degree, inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. If the Holy Spirit affirms and testifies to you that you're a child of God, he wants you to walk around with this reality that you have been chosen, that you're a chosen child of God, and that you have status, you have privilege, that you should feel comfortable in exercising your right as a child of God. You know, we struck a deal with our kids years ago. Um, it, it was after Alexa, when she was first born, we threw a kid's party. How many are familiar with those kid's parties, right? What you don't know is that kid's parties are terrible. And so <laughs> here's why. We're not a fan. They're very expensive. Um, uh, you don't have fun as a parent. Uh, they're also, this is pre-COVID, man, it just Germs spreading everywhere. Kids just like, I'm having fun, you know. Just, uh. um, It's exhausting. So we struck a deal. We threw all of them one big party very early on, like by five. And then we'd have a talk with them. Say, hey, doc, bad news, champ. What's that? We're never doing this again for the rest of your life. But we're not going to leave you high and dry. In exchange, every year for your birthday, and those of you that have been born close, we're going to combine because we're not rich. What we're going to do is we're going to go away at least one night as a family. And what we found is that our kids are not that difficult to please. They just need uh, a pool and a hotel and a waffle maker. And so you, if you're willing to drive long enough, you can find some good rates and some cheap stuff, cheaper than any party we've ever had. And all we got to do is go to this pool and waffle maker, and that's it. Alexa turned 13 in April. I can't even believe those words came out of my mouth, 13. And she, um, she cashed in her chips. She said, hey, it's a big birthday. I was like, yeah, we agree. It's a big birthday. She was like, can we go away for a few more days than normal? I was like, oh, wow. That's a great thought. It's like, do you have a job I don't know about? You know, like, <laughs> Who's, who's paying for this extravagance? That was, those were my hidden thoughts. Um, my kids, apparently, they, they, they ran through a bunch of dadisms, things that I say a lot. Apparently, my response to a lot of their requests for things is like, that sounds great. You should start a business so you can pay for that. And so <laughs> apparently I say that a lot, more than I realize. And so after I got over that she wasn't going to pay for this extended trip, that she was expecting us to do it, All of a sudden, it hit me, I was like, man, I absolutely love the fact that she didn't come to us like a beggar, as a pauper, that she didn't come pleading and bargaining, that she had a sense of our love for her, and that there was a comfort, an audacity even, for a 13-year-old to say, give me more money, you know? She knows what I do for a living. You know, <laughs> audacity. And I realize, man, when our relationship with God for so many of us, when we come to God, how we pray, what we say, so often reveals that we see ourselves as paupers before God, as beggars, rather than children. Children. Let's say, I have a reasonable expectation to believe that you're going to be good to me. And I'm going to pray from that place. Now, to be a child of God doesn't mean you won't face trials. and and, No, you will. I would love everything. I've, I've realized I can't protect my kids from danger and mishaps and things, but I could assure them I'll be there with them no matter what. I realize the Father, to walk with him is not some promise that you're never going to have heartache and disappointment and bad reports and situations, but it is a promise to know that he's going to be with us through it all when we feel worthy of his presence and when we feel unworthy because we realize this is an identity that is not earned. It's an identity that's affirmed. And what that means for us practically is that in the moments where you feel most alive, most in tune with God, most spiritual, most obedient, and in the moments that you feel so far, so off, so broken, so undeserving, the relationship status doesn't change because it was never contingent on your ability to earn your place at the table. It was always an affirmed identity. You were always given a chosen status. The status you bear as a child of God was chosen for you. You were adopted. You were affirmed into this. All you had to do was believe the gospel. And from that moment on, how we pray changes, how we live changes, how we face heartache changes, because He's our Father. And the Holy Spirit delivers us from these fears that are rooted in the lie that we're not loved. As the worship team comes forward, I wanna invite us if we could stand. As we stand, I can't think of a more appropriate way to end our time together. Than to come to the Lord's table. Because it's in this act of communion when we come to the Lord's table where we are reminded of this status that we enjoy as children of God through faith, by grace, never A striving, earning, deserving status. In this room, there are people that you know. That it almost feels like... It almost feels like, did the Holy Spirit get it wrong? Clearly, he was trying to affirm somebody else as a child of God. Because he couldn't have been trying to affirm me with my past with my struggles, with the shame I've had to work through. I'm undeserving. But yet, it's those of us that would be willing to admit I'm a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I am in need of the grace that's offered to sinners. It's you and I that the Holy Spirit comes ready to affirm Say, now you can be called a child of God with the bread in hand. 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 23, the apostle Paul says this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus we thank you for your broken body that in the breaking of your body we find hope and healing You've made it possible through your atoning death that we would have peace with God through faith in what you've done for us. The tragedy of the cross has rendered victory for us. And we thank you for that. Let's receive the bread. cup in hand. verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, thank you for not only your broken body, but your shed blood. That your scripture teaches us that it's through the shed blood that you offer that we can be redeemed and we can be made new, that we can be washed, cleansed, our shame lifted. We could stand righteously because of the righteousness you credit to us. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done and all you've made available through your death, burial, and resurrection. We receive your sacrifice now. we respond in song and in worship, I want to encourage you. The prayer team is available. Um, They're going to be to the back, my left, to your right. And so at any given moment during the next few moments, you can slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer. For anything the message might have stirred for you or anything you're going through whatsoever, I would really encourage you to go and receive prayer. Powerful things happen. True story. Friday night, I was with a bunch of vineyard pastors and we were praying folks that didn't know anything about me praying over me and were speaking words that only Jesus could have put in their heart to pray. Absolutely powerful. This is the reality of what the Holy Spirit often does and so I encourage you go and receive prayer. The other thing is you've heard us talk about it. We have an upcoming baptism class And that would be an incredible space. If you're here today and you're like, man, I want to be a child of God. I want this affirmed identity. But you're not sure where you're at. Baptism class would be a phenomenal space to process some of those questions. Hear scripture. And see if you might be ready to take that step. Uh, Praise be to God. There are several folks that are actually ready to take that step in our community. We're excited. We'll be having a baptism service very soon. But if you are interested in exploring that, that would be an incredible thing. Sign up, contact Pastor Denise, get your place in that class. We'd love to have you there. With that, could I invite us to raise our hands in the presence of God? Let's worship him. Let's respond to him who is here to affirm that reality that we're children of God by faith. The prayer team is available. Let's worship God together. You are my champ.